Excited to continue our series through the book of James this evening. Jumping back into chapter number two. We're going to be covering just uh, really a few verses this evening, 18 through 20. The title of the message is Simple Faith and Works. Uh, we're going to let the, uh, the text guide us this evening. And we continue to investigate and discover uh, what James, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say about the relationship between faith and works. There was apparently... Um, challenges in understanding this rightly, so much so that James felt like uh, the Holy Spirit had, had prodded him to uh, pen these words. There is confusion and uncertainty even our day uh, with different denominations and understanding of Scripture in regards to a biblical understanding of the relationship between faith and works. And so it's important for us as we work expositionally through the Word of God, when there's an opportunity for us to look into it and to maybe linger a bit longer through a topic that is as weighty and that has such eternal implications for us as is this topic of, of faith and, and works. Um, Dave, is there maybe another mic that we have? Is there one over here? Perfect. I might try to swap here and see if this one's a little bit more stable. It's probably user error anyways, but uh, we'll go with it. So let's, let's read our text this evening, James chapter number 2, verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, James says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Faith and works. If you will remember with me back to uh, two weeks ago when we introduced this topic of faith and works, verse number 14 said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have faith? Works. You'll remember that we described the faith that James seems to be undermining in this passage without works is a faith that is self-proclaimed. It is a faith that is self-declared and it is a faith that ultimately is self-deceiving. It is someone who says they have faith, but yet they don't have works. James says that's not faith at all because why? It is not Christ-like. And so our big idea that we anchored in two weeks ago that we're going to stay in this evening, the, the big idea of this whole section, the second half of James chapter number two is salvation is secured by grace through faith and true salvation will always produce Christ-likeness, which will be evidenced by works of mercy and compassion for the good of mankind and the glory of God. I know that was a mouthful, but ultimately what we are going to contend for, as James did in this text of, of chapter number two, is that true, authentic faith will always produce, and we're going to redefine works as Christ-likeness. True, authentic 
authentic faith will always produce Christ-likeness. So this evening, by God's grace, we're going to make three observations concerning faith. Two of these observations will be for biblical and authentic faith, and one observation will be describing a counterfeit faith as we see in these, these few verses. So the first observation concerning authentic faith is this. Authentic faith in Christ will always be evidenced by grace-enabled good works. We see this in verse number 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So based again on the context that we worked through just two weeks ago, verses 14 through 17, he opens up verse number 18 with an objection. We could even call it an argument. And this argument is a timeless and universal disruption or misunderstanding concerning faith. What is this argument? Verse number 18, it's, it's that there is two different viewpoints. The two different viewpoints is someone will say, you have faith, but I have works. It's here that James creates uh, somewhat of a debate with this uh, imaginary panelist, we'll call him, right? There's not an actual person that he's addressing in this moment. He's creating a question. He's creating an argument that maybe he heard or that he's seen present in his day. But regardless, there's two different viewpoints. One says, I have works. The other says, I have faith. And at the conclusion, it's kind of, what's the big deal? Both are good, works are good, faith is good. Why do we have to reconcile these two things that seem to be in conflict with one another? So James introduces this argument, this position. And at the essence of this statement and this argument that James introduces is that he's attacking this idea that faith can be redefined. That faith can be redefined by the prevailing winds of whatever the uh, ideological ideas or philosophies of, philosophies of that day may bring. In his day, somebody said, I have faith. Others said they have works. And there was this atmosphere seemingly within the church and outside the church. Hey, let's just all get along. What's the big idea that you say that I have works and, and, and you have faith? We just all need to kind of get along and all ideas are created equal. It's interesting that James has this atmosphere in his day because I certainly feel the same thing in our day. Do you not? This idea that truth is relative, that all roads lead to God, Whatever you feel works best for you. There's a conflict with truth. Absolute truth exists. And it exists in the form of the inspired and errant word of God that we hold in our hands today. Friends, this fallacy, this danger that James 
hits square between the eyes, creating this debate with this argument of his day. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So in essence, James is drawing his readers into the crux of an argument. And once this argument is presented, he makes a statement. He, he draws them in and he makes this, this conclusive statement, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James is building the case for authentic biblical faith. And he reminds us that authentic faith in Christ will always be evidenced by grace-enabled good works. So his readers are leaning in. He makes this strong argument. He makes this strong statement. And what's he essentially saying? Show me. It's one thing to say that you believe in God. It's one thing to say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. But it's another thing to prove that or show that or demonstrate that as Christ is changing us to be more like himself as evidenced with the presence of good works. So we see this word show This statement, show me, twice in verse number 18, show me your faith apart from your worth or separated or without your works, and I will show or demonstrate or prove you my faith by my works. So it's in this response that we clearly see that works are not being added to faith, but rather true and authentic faith in Christ always has works, right? Look with me back up in verse number 17. Do you remember it? It says this, so faith, so also, excuse me, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If it does not have works, is dead. So true, authentic faith will always produce works. A faith that is alive and real and authentic and true, it already has works. We're not adding to faith. We're not completing faith by our works. True, authentic faith in Christ has works if it is alive. Dead faith, a useless faith, a self-proclaimed faith. It could have the absence of works. Why? Because it is dead. It's not alive. It's not true, authentic faith in Christ. This reminds us once again of our big idea. Salvation is secure. It's complete. It's done. By grace, through faith, and true salvation will always produce Christ-likeness, which is evidenced by works of mercy and compassion for the good of mankind and the glory of God. So the question for us would be, is our faith alive Is it dead? Does our faith have works or does it not? And that should cause us to do what? Look inward and to look upward and to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling to see if we truly are in the faith. 
This is what James is calling his readers to examine. Do they have true faith? Do they know Christ as Lord and personal Savior? Or are they just along for the ride, just as the crowds of Jesus' day did? Caught up in the experience and the emotions of sign, miracles, and wonders, but yet at the end of the day, they were there for what Christ could give them. They didn't truly believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Friends, James is calling us to examine to consider the validity of our faith in Christ. It's been said that faith alone saves. Amen? This is sola fide, right? We talked about this. This is one of the great solas of the Reformation, but faith that saves is never alone. Why? Because it's accompanied by living deeds. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone because it is accompanied by living deeds. A faith that is alive, that is working out their salvation through Christ-likeness as he's changing us to be less like the world and, and sanctified and set apart to Christ to be changed, to be more like the image of his dear son. Think of... Paul, in Galatians chapter number five, Paul argues there that true and authentic faith. I'll note this, that in this conversation of faith and works, many liberal theologians and others would like to pit James and Paul against each other in their view and their writing and their teaching on faith and works. But I'm here to say there, there's no conflict. There's cohesion. There's faithfulness, there's truth in these writings. In fact, Paul supports this idea that James is outlining right here in chapter number two. Galatians five, he argues that true and authentic faith in Christ will always produce what fruit? Do you remember it? In Galatians chapter number five, number five the fruit of the spirit. This is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I hope I got all of them. I was running through the song in my, in my mind. Did we get them all right? This is what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. If we are truly in Christ, if we are in the Spirit, there will be fruit on the vine of our life. And it will be visible. How? Not through just works that point to us, but rather it's going to be works of service and, and ministry and humility and giving of ourselves like whom? Like Jesus did when he walked this earth. So as Paul challenges us in Philippians chapter 2, to have this mind among you, which is yours in whom? Christ Jesus. This is what true, authentic faith looks like. We will look Act, live, and love, and interact as Christ did. It's Christ's likeness. It's not big, grand, self-serving works that James has in mind here. He has the humble disposition of Jesus in mind. And these are the works. James is calling us to, to take a basin filled with water and a towel to wash 
the disciples' feet there in the upper room, Last Supper, even whom Judas would betray him? These are the works that James is calling us to consider. This is faith in action. This is live faith. This is a living faith. This is not a dead, useless, foolish, self-serving, self-deceptive type of faith. James says, I can show you that my faith is alive just as Christ is alive and there is an empty tomb. I can show you a real powerful faith because it is grounded not in myself or what I can do, but in Jesus. So authentic faith in Christ will always be evidenced by grace-enabled good works. The second observation of authentic faith is this. Authentic faith in Christ will always go beyond mental and or verbal assent. Authentic faith in Christ will always go beyond mental and or verbal assent. Look at me in verse number 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Similar fashion to James chapter 2, verse number 8. James sets up his next round of teaching by calling out a common and well-known doctrine or truth. This will be the foundation that he will lay so that we can further expand and build on a more substantial argument that will expose error and wrong thinking. So look at me in verse number 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. James would be pointing to his Jewish audience. He would be pointing them back to the Shema, which would point our attention back to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse number four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? This is a powerful and basic and essential elementary truth of Judaism. The Shema, this, this would be called, the, the Lord is one. So James tosses out in kind of random fashion, it just seems like, that he just throws it out there and says, hey, if, if you believe that God is one, you do well. Just as Pastor Dave drew our attention to in verse number eight, if you practice the, the royal law, you do well. Do you, do you remember it, right? It, it, it's the same type of structure that James is, is leading us down right here. So he's, he's drawing them back to this, this basic truth of Judaism. The, the God of the Torah is monotheistic. He is one God. We would hold to that truth, would we not? God is one the doctrine of the Trinity would, would agree that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that there are three persons in, in one Godhead. We would all say a hearty amen to that. Amen. <laughs> That's right on cue. Thank you. This is, this is a basic truth. Three persons, one Godhead. Got it, Eric. We're good to go. Just as James would with his readers. We're all on the same page and James says you do well. 
He seemingly pats them on the back and they're feeling a little puffed up about their knowledge and understanding of, of Judaism. Yeah, I, I do know that and I do believe that. And yeah, I am doing well. I'm doing all right for myself because I know this truth about God. Others, theologians would say that James may even potentially be sarcastically bringing this idea in, that he is drawing their attention, that this would be some impressive knowledge, or that they would adhere to this truth of the Shema. But then James quickly shifts. He no longer is patting them on the back, but there's a reality check. There's a gut check that is about to come in regards to all the good stuff that they know up in their head. Look with me at verse number 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Wow. Even the demons believe and shudder. Authentic faith in Christ will always go beyond mental and or verbal assent. We are right to believe in the monotheistic nature of our God. But James reminds his readers and he reminds us even today that even the, de- the, the demons believe in the Shema. Even they get a little pat on the back because they have, uh, they have acknowledged something correctly about God. But friends, do you see where James is going here? Knowing something right or correct about God or doctrine or the Bible, that is not true, authentic faith. Book smarts, degrees on a wall, years at a Bible college, your upbringing in a Christian home, all the things that we could maybe cling to or look to and say, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. You do well. I know a lot of things and stories and scripture. I've even memorized much of it. The reality check, the gut check that James draws his readers' attention to is that even the demons believe and shudder. Unfortunately, in many cases within our Western brand of Christianity, the demons are potentially closer to faith than some heresy that we see being propagated in in the United States or the health, wealth, and prosperity gospels. Why? Because even the demons believe and they have at least a potential response of fear of the impending judgment as a result of their rejection of that truth. They know that God is one. They know that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The demons even know that he is the creator of all things. And what is their response? They shudder in fear. They have a fear and understanding that's, that's based on this imminent judgment that is coming as a result of their rebellion against God. So the demons believe, and it's clear that 
This belief that's being described here, it's, it's an academic belief. It's not a saving faith. It's a dead faith that looks back to verse number 17. And it will be later described in verse number 20 as a faith that is foolish and useless. So the demons believe and shudder, but what do many in our American circles of evangelicalism do? They believe and do nothing. They believe and pursue the American dream. They believe and pass by the hungry and hurting. They believe and do nothing. James contends that we should question the validity of that faith. A faith that is comfortable. A faith that is happy. A faith that is good with the status quo of believing rightly, but yet not evidenced through a heart change that results in Christ-like behavior. Why? Why would James contend that we should question the validity of that faith? Because this faith lacks the heartbeat of Christ. If you remember two weeks ago. Where there is no Christ-likeness being developed and experienced, James argues that there is no true authentic faith there. I couldn't help but think as I was preparing this message of the story of the rich young ruler. Mark chapter number 10, verses 17 through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is Christ, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler responded and said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, I love this phrase, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, go Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus offers to the rich young ruler, verse 22, disheartened by the saying, this rich young ruler went away, how sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, this rich young ruler came to Jesus, had a desire to follow Jesus, even recognized that he had the ability to offer eternal life, all good, right, and correct assumptions about Jesus. But he was unwilling to show or demonstrate true, authentic faith in Christ by doing and obeying what God had asked him to do. 
Ultimately, he was unwilling to come and follow Christ on Christ's terms. I wonder how many of us believe very good and right things concerning God. I wonder how many of us believe very good and right things concerning the Bible, but I wonder have we stopped with a mental and academic knowledge of Jesus Christ, and when we stop there, we do what? We settle for a, a self-proclaimed faith. Going back to verse 14, if someone says they have faith, but has not works. We settle for a self-proclaimed, a self-deceived faith that James is warning us about here in this chapter. He reminds us that believing the Shema is not able to save. The mental and verbal assent of the demons is not able to save. Only Jesus is able to do this work. Sola fide, faith alone, believing that Jesus died and rose again as we proclaimed just last Saturday. Are you thankful for that? There is an empty tomb. He is risen. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This faith, that faith, nothing more and nothing less, that faith will only save. James says that this faith will always move beyond mental or verbal assent and will always produce fruit for the glory of God. So this evening we've considered two observations of authentic faith. And for sake of time, we're going to, it absolutely is connected, so I'm not, I'm not cheaping anything here tonight. Uh, <laughs> verse number 20, it, it's, it's literally an introduction of the final few verses of James chapter 2, where we are going to have these two case studies um, that, that James will use to point out how this connection, this proper reconciliation between faith and works, how it was lived out in the life of Abraham and Rahab. So the counterfeit faith that we will talk about next week is that counterfeit faith apart from Christ will always be foolish and lack an eternal value. Counterfeit faith apart from Christ will always be foolish and lack an eternal value. So as we close this evening, consider 1 Corinthians 2.16 for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ, Paul says. In God's wisdom, God alone initiated faith and brought about that work only by God's grace. Even our response in faith to Christ's finished work on the cross, that response in faith is even described as a gift by God. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I've earned. There's nothing that, that God has done as a result or as a response to something that he sees in me, but rather it's God who sought me out in tenderness. He loved me as we sang this morning. So I wonder as we continue to consider faith and works and examine our own relationship with the Lord, are we in the faith? Is your faith real? Is it alive? Does it show forth Christ to this world that we live in? James reminds us 
there was no other plan but Christ. True, authentic faith. There was no other plan but to use those works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those works were always designed to point back to God the Father. His redemptive plan that was poured out before the foundation of the world that we should be in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that as we consider the word of God and consider James' instruction faith and works, that we would understand rightly the word of God and these truths and doctrine. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see that your Holy Spirit would illumine, open the eyes of our heart that we could know you. Where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Father, these words in verse number 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So also faith by itself, verse 17, if it does not have works, is dead. Father, we long for a living, breathing, authentic, true faith that is alive and that is fruitful for your glory. God, let us show forth your glory in this world. Let us be your hands, your feet. Let us reach out and love those that you have placed into our sphere of influence. Whether it's the homeless a corner, whether it's a neighbor uh, in, on our street, whether it's a co-worker that you have sovereignly placed in our path, Father, let us be ready to serve and to be joyful to reach out and be Christ in that moment. 